This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is interior designer Benjamin Johnston. Ben began his career in architecture, working in Japan for the renowned firm of Cesar Pelli. But soon he found himself drawn to interior design and opened up his own shop in his home state of Texas. In a relatively young career, Ben has won wide recognition for his work. His projects have graced magazine covers, and he's landed product deals with Chaddock and S. Harris. I spoke with Ben about the problem of luxury brands not providing luxury service, learning to talk money with clients, and why he strives for excellence, not perfection. This podcast is sponsored by Leloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. If you miss them at Vegas Market, Leloy's newest summer introductions keep design at the forefront. Pieces that are beautiful in your home and ethically crafted. The new collections are handmade in India and Goodweave certified, which ensures they come from an ethical and transparent supply chain. See those collections and more at laloirugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. Follow them on Instagram and TikTok at laloirugs to see the rugs from even more angles. This podcast is also sponsored by Tebow. Need wall covering, fabric, or trim in a pinch? Tebow maintains industry-leading inventory levels in their state-of-the-art Charlotte, North Carolina distribution center. With 95% of products in stock at all times, Tebow account holders enjoy speedy shipments with in-stock items shipping in two days. To open a Tebow trade account, visit tebowdesign.com slash trade slash boh. And now, on with the show. If I recall, growing up in Missouri City, Texas, mm -hmm. yes? That's correct. And how did architecture become an early path for, for you? Being a young man in Texas, if you're interested in design, there's a few different directions you might be pushed. Um, I would imagine for me, obviously, interior design was not at the top of the list of thoughts of encouragement for a young man, uh, <laughs> but architecture was. So okay. they, they, uh, I was encouraged by my family uh, to pursue that. And it was something, and it still is something I'm extremely passionate about. Uh, the interior design aspect of my business has really been kind of the biggest surprise. And then to come back to architecture all these years later has also been a wonderful, a wonderful evolution. Well, that, and I want to talk about that because so, so you go and you get uh, multiple architecture degrees, right? right. And, and you, you get this incredible opportunity to go to Japan, if I remember, and that's right, correct, and work for this very famous architect, Cesar Pelli. Yes, right, and this seems like a dream come true. <laughs> yes, and it was. <laughs> so the so the disconnect really happened was the main focus of that practice is developing these multi-million uh, dollar developments where we're doing massive high-rises, we're doing shopping malls, we're doing all of these very large-scale projects. I was hired on actually to do what 
I think many people would think is like the pinnacle of being an architect's career, which was my job was to look at the floor plates and the development and to skin these buildings in really beautiful ways. That is a lot of fun and it was really a great experience for me. But working at that scale, I felt, especially in a city like Tokyo, I felt so dehumanized in the aspect of the creative process that I was making and doing. And so for me, I went from being very thrilled initially to be working at such a large inhuman scale that I became very hungry for the small scale. So I became hungry for uh, the intimate and the small and the the handmade and the crafted and things that I just was not doing in that that particular role. So tell me how that ended. Tell me how you got out of all of that. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I was there in 2003 to 2004. And okay. um, luckily, I had the option I could have stayed, but I wanted to move along. And so I came back to the States and I uh, knew I wanted to do design of some sort, but not really knowing exactly what that would look like or how that would feel or what kind of projects I'd be doing. I had a business partner at the time and we were doing kind of designing and building furniture pieces and installations for restaurants. And we were like building all this stuff. It was really cool. It was this <laughs> really kind of hands-on experience. And that experience really led me to people seeing our work in the public sphere and saying, you know, we really love this restaurant that you did. Could you do something like that for our personal home? Um, and it also led to small architecture projects where they're like, you know, we really like your work. Can you advise us on this addition to our house? And can you, uh, you know, we've hired an architect, but can you also advise in, the, in a design capacity for this new build? Uh, and I got a lot of referrals from architects who were like, okay, he's one of us. We like him. <laughs> we know that we can trust that he has architecture, you know, his architecture background. So he's not going to try to introduce some wild harebrained schemes that are going to fight what we're doing. And ultimately, that is what led me to kind of creating my interiors practice. Well, and I know you talked about in the past when we've spoken, not wanting to not wanting to alienate these architects or, or, or sort of walking this fine line of yeah. being an architect yourself, <laughs> not wanting to create competition for them. Exactly. Uh, right? Yeah, it was totally true. I mean, you know, it was for me, it was only kind of at the behest of my clients saying, you know, we, we love working with you and we really want you. We would have would appreciate if you would just do the whole architecture project. And I was very reticent to say yes to those opportunities and to expand in that direction because we had so many architects referring us work. I was afraid that that faucet would turn off. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we had already been employing architects on our team for quite some time. And I've been pleasantly surprised that architects continue to refer us work, even though they know that we also have an architecture team. And that's been uh, wonderful because I actually, I just really enjoy those experiences collaborating with an outside team and with our team. I feel we get to learn and grow together. You alluded to the architects recognizing that you speak their <laughs> language, right? Or yeah. you you understand their sensibility. And I'm right. I'm amazed that in this day and age there still seems to be this conflict. Tell me about that for for you. You have to understand our industry is made up of so such a wide variety of different types of designers. So we have everyone from 
very learned, degreed, professional interior designers. Uh, we also have a lot of people who kind of came to it not through education or not through experience, just but because they had a passion for it. Mm. Um, and not at all saying that those journeys are not equally valid, but I know that many of the reasons why these architects were saying they found a kindred spirit in me is because I really understood what their vision was. And I was intent on developing interiors that really complemented or enhanced the architecture that they were bringing to us. So for me, you know, in architecture world, we call it Arca-speak. Uh, I spoke <laughs> architect and they could understand and appreciate that. And so that was a very seamless collaboration. And you have to understand there's a lot of people, again, who without really understanding what that is that the architect's vision was, they're like, I want to put a window there. And the architect's like, there cannot be a window there. And I do not want a window there. It sounds like you had different partners along the way. I have. Yes. And and so tell me a little bit about that because it looks like you had two or three different yes, firms. Okay. I did. And you know, my first one my first firm was multidisciplinary. We were really kind of casting a wide net and saying, well, we'll do we'll plug in wherever we need to plug in. It was at that point that I decided to kind of really hone in and dedicate myself fully to interior design. So I had a second iteration of my company, which was a shared partnership, and uh, that worked very well. Um, my partner was a former accountant, and she only wanted to do it for a few years before she retired. Uh, and <laughs> she, she found it wonderful, but I was at the point of saying, I really want to ramp up. And I need to, I'm thinking about the next, you know, 30, 40 years of my career, and I'm ready to kind of take this to the next level. And uh, she was kind of like, okay, well, <laughs> it's been fun. It's been great, <laughs> but I need to slow down. And I totally understood it. So our paths diverged at that point. And then that's when I actually formed Benjamin Johnston Design, which uh, has become uh, this interiors, and then later on incorporating kind of total home design into the mix. Uh, that's how that came about. And I should mention, wonderfully benefited by my both my current partner, who's both my life partner and my uh, work partner. He's the managing uh, director or managing partner of the firm. And uh, he comes to us from a business background. So he was really instrumental in terms of being able to grow the firm and the very strategic way that we've grown it. So your partner, I'm wondering... Did that work partnership happen as a result of how you were were growing and the and the need for for a partner like that, or tell me how that all came together? Yeah, you know it's so great. Um, my partner <laughs> Eric, he is uh, such a such a gem. I mean, the man knows business backwards and forwards. Uh, but he also had a passion for interior design. And he was a road warrior. I call a road warrior for years. He was traveling, <laughs> you know, five, six days a week. And he would go to the airport and he would pick up all the lifestyle magazines. And he just dreamed. He was like, someday I'm going to be involved with an interior design company somehow. I just know it. And so he walks into my life uh, and he was at that point of, of seeing where my business was really growing. And he started advising me on 
what I could do to be better uh, in certain areas uh, from a business standpoint. And so he started actually kind of uh, more on the side business consulting with my my business. And then ultimately, mm. we were able to grow the business in a way strategically enough that we could afford to bring him on full time and be our our managing partner. So here we are now seven years later and our company has grown incredibly and I'm super proud of what we've been able to accomplish together with our team. So I'm eager to hear what his early advice <laughs> was to to you. And, and yeah. I'm always, and you and I talked about this recently, I'm always so eager to hear what an outsider, somebody who was consulting for IBM steps mm -hmm. into our sometimes Byzantine, uh, outdated little <laughs> Little world and, right. uh, and and what they make of it but was there was there a a project or what I'm wondering what for you made it possible to bring him on I'm sure you've heard of a whale client yes okay so the whale clients they come along on occasion and um, just like in a whaling village where uh, those whalers would get this one big whale and it would feed the village for the entire year yeah. you know um and so we had a whale client it was actually a project in mexico and they wanted their help on restoring their family's kind of homestead and i knew in intrinsically that i was understaffed and i did not have um, the bandwidth to do everything i needed to do in a really excellent way that project actually gave us the kind of the funds, the seed funds to be able to staff up. I mean, every bit of profit we got from that project, we invested right back into the company. And, you know, there was no wonderful vacation after that trip. You know, <laughs> the reward for, for good work is more work. So um, that experience really catapulted me to being able to not only have the confidence to go after bigger and bigger jobs, but also uh, the funds to grow our team and to expand our benefits and expand what it is that we offer our team members, which was, made me very happy. So how big was your team at the time? And it was a company of three. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So it's quite, okay. yeah. And so now we're um, essentially a company of 18. Uh, so we have significantly grown and, you know, it's, it's been wonderful. It's been a really great journey. And honestly, I have to pinch myself sometimes to kind of just take stock and be extremely grateful for, for the uh, risks that we've taken and how those have paid off, not just for ourselves, but for all the people that we provide for. And when you say risks, taking on a project of that size, when you were such a small firm, do you, do you view that as a, as a risk that you took? I do think that's a risk. I always call it double income, no kids. We're dinks. Uh, Eric and I are dinks. And when you have double income, no kids, it allows you to kind of be a little bit more risky in terms of opportunities and, and things that you want to experiment with. Uh, so as an example, you know, I've been approached many times to do Kips Bay and I've been, I haven't felt at certain points that the time was right. Um, but I knew that there was money we were setting aside in our marketing budget to do and participate in a really wonderful way in those opportunities. But then we had actually a, a, a builder, a fabulous, excellent builder that I had always wanted to work with. And we kind of cold called him and just said, you know, we would love an opportunity to work together. Do you have any opportunities on the horizon? 
He said, well, I'm actually working on a show house that I want to do, and I don't do one very often. Um, and I, looking at him as kind of a gateway to the kind of more projects that I wanted to do, I said, you know what? We are not only going to design all the interiors, but we're also going to furnish all of the interiors for this entire house that is, I think, was around 12,000 square feet. So hmm. taking the money that we had kind of set aside from a marketing point of view for doing just maybe a single room, we decided to do that for the whole house. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the entire 12,000 square foot home. Yes. Why not? Why not? You know, and, and that was a risk that we could take. And, and, and honestly, that one project had gave us not only the cover of traditional home, um, but an incredible spread. And we have gotten so much work off of that one project. So that's just one example of some of the risks that we take. So when Eric looked at the home industry and you explained a little bit of how how things work, <laughs> right. right? Was he a little was he a little taken aback? Was he, little... he 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 was a little taken aback. I will I, okay. I will say, you know, it's funny you you sometimes get so used to certain things in your industry and quirks about your industry that you don't really look at it with a fresh set of eyes. So it was really interesting for me for Eric to then quickly identified um, that our industry is made up of many wonderful, colorful characters, uh, some of whom are great at what they do, and some of whom are absolutely terrible <laughs> at what they do. <laughs> and I think that was a that was a really uh, eye-opening experience for him. I think he had always looked at the magazines do a great job of making it look very glamorous and glossy and beautiful and and perfect. Um, but it is it comes as any interior designer who works or anyone in our industry who works that may be listening to this can attest. It it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to kind of get get um, some of these projects not only realized, but then to also deal from a business side with some of the companies that, that we have to collaborate with. Some of whom it sounds like are more helpful and service oriented than, than others. A hundred percent. And, you know, I remember some of my, you know, I have wonderful relationships with a lot of companies that I just, you know, I really appreciate and that they really go to bat for us. I mean, they really work hard. Um, there are a lot of companies that are also just, <laughs> they make the experience a, a painful one. Uh, you know, one of the things that was a hard realization for for everybody in my office is that as you work up your your way up the food chain in terms of luxury providers, what does not always come with it is luxury service. It can be actually a, a very hair-pulling <laughs> experience <laughs> to try to do business with some of these companies. So I, I've always found that to be one of the great ironies of our industry that is also very unique. What we've learned is that in our industry, and what was so eye-opening to Eric, uh, again as as a new a newbie to our 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 business, is that luxury service is not necessarily coming from luxury vendors of luxury products. And so, what what seems to be the disconnect? Because if you asked any of these companies, they would tell you that service is their top priority, and they they talk to you about service all day long. Right. You know, I think the disconnect comes from, you know, like if I'm going to 
uh, one of our clients, we have a project in London and the, our clients always very graciously put us up at the Dorchester Hotel. And the, you know, the Dorchester has so many signature hotels around the world. And if you look at the way that their staff is trained, um, and they have an entire school, by the way, of training for providing a luxury service and everyone in the company from the doorman to the, to the people, the housekeeping crew go to basically school for how to provide a luxury service. We don't have anything like that in our industry. You know, we have a lot of people who either, again, definitely didn't go to business school. <laughs> they definitely, <laughs> if they went to design school, they definitely got a type of education that was geared towards design skills. Um, and then some of them who may not necessarily weren't cut out for or wanting to actually do the design work, because that's a big undertaking and it can be very hard for many people. Um, they ended up getting jobs in some of these like these companies, these luxury companies, because they had design experience. Well, they were never trained mm. to either be um, on professional business etiquette. They were never trained on how to provide a luxury experience for their clients. Um, it doesn't matter if their sofa that they're selling is $35,000 for a sofa. It's not coming with the service that comes with, I mean, even an, a, many of the vendors who we can get a sofa for a third of that cost or even less than that cost are providing much better service than they are at the upper ends of the market. It's just crazy to me. Well, it, it sounds crazy. And I wonder what, so, in, and, and, I've, and I've always believed that, yes, go and recruit from English hotels. <laughs> go, go, go and hire people totally. who work at the Dorchester or who work at the Connaught and who just know, and who probably speak nine languages and, <laughs> and understand service on a whole other level. But and, and I really do believe that hospitality does such great training mm -hmm. you know, even even some of the great american chains do, do have an extensive training program that they put you through right. but but i wonder what is the service that your less expensive workroom might be giving you versus one of your highfalutin design center companies that's a great question i mean i think yeah. it comes down to a few things i mean as a designer we expect that first of all we get accurate information so if I ask for, you know, what are the options with this product line or what is the kind of customizability or little things like, can I get a quote for this? And it is like pulling teeth to get this information. And so you'll be waiting for weeks to get quotes. Um, and it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. And you have to call them and call them and email them and call them again and say, could you please, I have a big presentation. Please, 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 please provide us with a quote to sell this very expensive furnishing for you. It's just crazy to me that we would have to do that, but we do that every day. It's crazy that that is the level of service that we get from a lot of these luxury you know, product vendors. And you have to understand, like one number difference. I mean, rem I remember I ordered some um, beautiful fabric for a, a project and one of the colors was silk and the other color was silt with a T at the end, not a K. And they shipped out this very lovely, beautiful, expensive fabric that was put onto a chair. And I get... I <laughs> Like, I were doing the install and I hadn't seen this custom upholstery and it, it shows up and I'm like, that's the wrong color, you know? So I, I only bring this up because it is literally, there's so many potential 
opportunities for somebody to make a mistake. Either they didn't have their glasses on or, or yeah. they just literally, it was dark and when they pulled the fabric and they, in the warehouse that they pulled it from, I mean, you mentioned earlier this Byzantine industry and it is yeah. really remarkable to me how old some of these companies really are. Fortuny as an example is a really truly an ancient company. Yeah. Um, and it's really remarkable to me that we are keeping some of these arts and crafts alive. And I, I try for my clients when my clients get frustrated because things are delayed and because there was a mistake, like the wrong fabric put on a, on a frame, I really try to spend some romance around the fact that it is truly a luxury experience because thousands of people are participating in the creation of this one space, you know, mm. and any one of them, by the way, could have made a mistake. So I try to actually just kind of say, you know, this is an ancient uh, industry and mm. it is handmade and it is wonderful and beautiful because of that. Uh, but yeah, you're going to, you're going to occasionally find some mistakes that have been made along the way. <laughs> And isn't that wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, and 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 I mean, I think you're you very generously suggest that you 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 appreciate that that these companies are making it possible for you to to buy the, these very special, high quality, r rarefied things. That's and, true. And Right, and the, and the challenge is how how can we get them to you in 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 a, in a way right that's just a little easier and and communicate a little bit better. It sounds like well, and you I well let me just say this: all of us are enjoying uh, a, a life of convenience, unlike we've ever experienced before. I call it living in an Amazonia Prime, uh, this kind <laughs> of fantastical world that we live in where things are magically delivered to your door like less than 24 hours after you ordered it. You know, it's interesting. Whenever we have hand-knotted rugs made, I try really hard to get the factory uh, of wherever they're being produced in the world, be it Nepal or India, I try to get them to send us photos of all the people hand knotting their rug. Mm. And I like to send it to my clients because my clients are like, oh my God, I didn't realize that there are literally five men or women sitting you know, next to one another, hand knotting exactly. your rug. They yeah. think it literally came off of a conveyor belt in the sky and was instantly somehow dropped into their home. And it just, that's obviously not the case. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Tebow. Interior designers, are your clients looking for heirloom quality furniture delivered before the end of the year? Tebow Fine Furniture has you covered in as little as six weeks. With their quick ship program, you can choose from an assortment of styles and finishes with Tebow Performance Fabrics. To learn more, visit tebowdesign.com slash furniture slash B-O-H. And now, back to the show. We're in this weird period where things seem to have slowed down a little bit on the lower end of the of the industry. We had a, another factory, sadly, in North Carolina. I saw that. Closed, right? Klossner closing their, their doors on the higher end. Not too long ago, we had Jean de Mary uh, close their doors. A bunch of people had <laughs> orders in-house. <laughs> you might have been one of them. Um, yeah. 
how 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 was that for hopefully that's resolved. it's been resolved yeah luckily okay. um luckily they were able um our products were essentially what we finally learned is that those products were done and although there was obviously some scary weeks where we couldn't mm. receive no information and no updates eventually those products did ship and we did receive them in good condition so we're, we're very much relieved but again you know when these um you're putting a lot of trust and faith in these companies uh when you're when you're buying you know millions of dollars of products every year and and many of these companies might be holding a significant amount of that uh in in their coffers and if they go under you're kind of you're kind of screwed <laughs> to be honest no 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 absolutely you're really at their mercy as mm -hmm. you discovered for yeah. yourself i mean it, yeah and does it does it give you pause? Does it does it make you I mean, ultimately, you know, you've got to you've got to deliver to your clients. And um I just more pray that our clients are understanding as issues arise. Um and they will always arise. I think I, I'm again big proponent of communicating uh, if there's been any big upsets and letting them know that we're working diligently to get those issues resolved. But I will say we have to continue to invest in these companies. I know I was devastated because I was, I once upon a time when Durley was still a solvent, wonderful company, I was, right. I did a lot of business with Durley. And, um, I was really heartbroken when I started to hear more and and then there was there was a point where I even had people in the showroom say we're not confident in you giving us orders because we don't know what's going to happen. And so that was a scary time for for my friends who work there and and sure. scary time for the company. Uh but I, I don't know. I think you have to continue to support these companies or they do go away. And sadly, a lot of times the people who pay the biggest price are actually the artisans and the craftsmen who make the product. And so I, I am passionate about domestic manufacturing and I am passionate about keeping arts and crafts in America alive. Uh, so we try to as much as we possibly can um, source product that is uh, made here in North America and um, and try to keep those those industries alive. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 absolutely, and and I certainly support you in those in those efforts and feel the same way. And I and I hope that Jean de Marie which was its own story, and and uh, and and Klausner, it sounds a bit just like lots of restructuring perhaps lots of lots of leverage and so maybe there were some specific stories there uh but i know that speaking of american made uh, furniture i wanted to talk a little bit about some of your licensing that you yeah. that you got into and the unique way that, that if i recall you you started your partnership with with chaddock for example uh, yeah. a company that we're familiar with I've been a fan of Chaddix for, for years and I had been specifying their product on projects, uh, you know, perennially. And, and, you know, there was some, I think they have some fabulous designs by, um, 
are colleagues and friends of yours and mine, um, both, you know, Larry Laszlo, Mary McDonald, Mark Sykes, they had all this wonderful product. And, you know, I am a more modern designer. I'm known for more uh, modern work. And so for me, I just remembered being challenged by our local sales rep, Texas sales rep for Chattic Furniture. You'd always say, you know, can't you work in a little bit of, of Chattic here and there? <laughs> like, you, we should be doing more business. And I, you know, probably after the fifth or sixth time I heard um, the sales associate say that to me, I said, you know what? You're right. I probably could be doing more business. I love what you stand for. I love the customizability of it. I love the fact that 90% of it is made right there in Morganton, North Carolina. And I love the leadership there with Andrew Crone as the CEO uh, and Kevin Ward um, as the president. And, you know, I just, I loved everything about the company. And I thought, you know what, the only way that I could see this as really, if I, you really want me to become an even better customer is that if I could create some designs for you that I knew that I either, I, I felt like there were holes in the market, like certain kinds of, of product that I just could not find, or um, just something from a design aesthetic that I felt like was unique. And so maybe it's not function, but aesthetics. And then the third was kind of saying, you know, what are what are some pieces that I'm always struggling to find and that I would love to get this kind of product in my exact specifications? So I designed kind of preemptively over a holiday break, probably, I guess now two years ago, I designed a hundred different pieces of furniture. <laughs> I, yeah, I literally, I have sketches and sketches and sketches. Um I scanned them all in. I called Andrew up and I said, Andrew, I've designed an entire collection. collection for you. (laughs) And I would love the opportunity to show you what I've created. And he graciously said, well, you know, come on up. So I flew up to, uh, to North Carolina and I met with Andrew and their leadership. And I presented to them all the furniture pieces, uh, through a process of editing. We actually settled on 50 pieces, um, which we put into production and that debuted at High Point Market a year ago last fall. And um, and then for this past spring market, we actually introduced an additional 19 pieces uh, to the collection. And um, it's been going extremely well. Well, so, so was Andrew just sort of blown <laughs> away when you present 100 pieces of furniture that you had designed for, I mean... Uh, Andrew's really great. Andrew has got one of the best poker faces of anybody yes, I've very, ever met. Yes, exactly. He's very <laughs> straight-faced. and I hope he hears this. Um, yeah, yeah, so he has a great poker face. So he honestly... Honestly, yes. didn't really say much, um, mm. but they literally kind of stone faced and they were like, okay, well, great. Thank you so much great. for coming. Thanks for coming in. We'll call you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think I, I heard back from them the next week and they were like, you know, we're, we would love to embark on this journey with you. And we think you're perfect for the, for this um, opportunity you've brought to us. And I, you know, it goes back to whenever I remember I, um, whenever you're, you write your resume, you're supposed Mm. to kind of not say, this is what I want the company to do for me, but this is what I want to help you accomplish for you. Uh, And it's, they, I think they call that your unique promise of value. So for Mm. me, my unique promise of value was like, let me majorly, support you as a company by creating an opportunity that is mutually beneficial, mutually enriching. Uh, and I think that that was something that resonated with them. And I was thrilled that they they took that chance. What turns out to be 
the reality. So for all the designers out there <laughs> listening, right, yeah. who their dream right. is, and and as we've talked about before we, with other designers, so often people think it's it's the get rich quick scheme mm. is to get this furniture line going with some big North Carolina company <laughs> and the money is just going to be rolling in. Uh, Set us straight. Tell us what the reality is. A couple of things. One, they think these companies are much bigger than they actually are. Mm. Um, and one of the things that was wonderful in my experience is understanding before I even designed the furniture line, I was really intent on understanding, you know, what is the factory capable of and what are their craftsmen capable of? Because I didn't want to design stuff that they couldn't necessarily make themselves. Um, first of all, let's back up and say, I think a lot of people think that Chaddock tapped me on the shoulder and said, mm. I want you to design this furniture line and I'm going to hire you to do it. No, that's not it at all. And actually, many of my colleagues who have actually pursued licensing their designs, they have been the one who initiated the conversation. It wasn't the other way around. And so one of the things that I would say that is a takeaway for me, if I, for anyone listening interested in this, is that if opportunity doesn't knock, and it rarely does knock, um, only if you're really one of the most well-known global superstars, the Kelly Worcesters of the world, are right. they going to knock on your door? Um, you have, you know, they say if, you, if opportunity doesn't knock, you got to build a door. So I built a door for myself in this particular <laughs> opportunity. And the third is, is that, you know, this concept of mailbox money. Of course, we all, you know, that's what I call it. You know, we all think that it's uh, once the design is done, you know, I can wipe my hands and the work is done. But I actually, you wouldn't believe it's it's basically a second full-time job for me uh, because I spend a good portion of every week supporting either work that's happening on behalf of showrooms to show the product, putting together vignettes, consulting on colors and materials and palettes for that showroom. And then the constant drumbeat that has to happen in order to make sure that the product stays relevant and you're constantly working on new product. I mean, it is, it is a, it's a full-time job. If you are passive about your collaboration, it's going to literally go to sleep, <laughs> never to yeah. wake up. So yeah. you, you're going to have to continue to feed it. So we're always curious about what, license partnerships mean for designers and how mm -hmm. they how they think about them we're, we're often surprised some really big designers have practically no licensing mm -hmm. deals right and then others have 57 of them right and, and so we wonder how so how do you think about what they represent I really looked at these opportunities to develop relationships with companies that I really love so for me that relationship with Chaddock was one I I really believed in and wanted to explore my, um, again, I mentioned Fabricut earlier. That's part of, uh, you know, S Harris, who I did my fabric line with. Um, yeah. they're close family friends and I've just, I adore, adore them. And I really wanted to create that opportunity with them. There was nobody else I wanted to do a fabric line with. So I also on that deal, I said, you know, I have all these designs. I, I drew all of my own fabric designs and I came to them and I was like, you know, guys, I would love the opportunity to do this with you, but if I don't do it with you, I'll, I'll end up doing it with somebody else. Are you interested? And they were looking through the designs. They were like, this is perfectly quintessential S. Harris. We want to do it. So mm -hmm. I was thrilled that they, um, again, they wanted to do it with me. But I was going to do it one way or the other. <laughs> 
and you laid that down for them. You're like, listen, this fabric line is going to be happening. made. You can get on board, or this train is leaving the station, finer family. Uh, this is true. This is okay. true. And and honestly, David, okay. uh, David is is just one of the my favorite people. I call him my surrogate father. I think we talk probably at least once or twice a week. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Leloy. For almost 20 years, Leloy has made its name not only in home textiles at all price points, but also in customer service. Members of the trade have dedicated Leloy sales representatives to answer their needs, with an easy-to-use sample program and fast shipping directly from Leloy's warehouses. Learn more at LeloyRugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com for an inside look at all things Leloy follow at Leloy rugs on Instagram and TikTok and now back to the show shifting gears because I want you to tell me if you take this seriously or if you don't okay 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 I'm ready so, I'm ready all right Okay, so recently we we did an article on the site about these micro trends that okay. seem to be okay happening on TikTok, and then you very graciously do a nod to Tomato Girl Summer, I believe was the <laughs> was the theme that you yes. that you used as a jumping off point for <laughs> right true. for a real. I I doubt that was going through your mind originally when you were thinking, but definitely good for not. you for hopping on board right with the well I. I have to say there are wonderful people I collaborate with, including uh, my publicist, uh, Megan Hotze. And, you know, I, I count on these people to keep me young and relevant, I swear to God. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Megan and and um, her her associate, uh, Emery, were really the ones who, they were like, oh, this is a trend and you've already done it. So, like... You- <laughs> You've got Tomato Girl Summer lined up and ready to go. Just put it out there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. So much of, of those social media platforms is about packaging your um, your designs in a way mm. that it feels relevant. And I think it's interesting. You know, you can post the same image like 15 times and it's going to be new to a huge number of your followers, just the way the algorithms work. So it's interesting to me to kind of go back and and look at those opportunities. We completed that project a year ago, and it was really wonderful to kind of go back and it's like, oh, this tomato red, I'm seeing it everywhere. <laughs> um, and and then they they literally they were the ones that were like, oh, Ben, we've got to do this as as a part of your social media strategy. So <laughs> anyway, it's funny. Well, it, it is funny. And I and I love I love that they're that they're keeping you young and and informed of of, of what's, Somebody's of what's got happening because <laughs> my clients are making me old so <laughs> I have more gray hair in my beard uh, than I used to so let's put it that way and and what is it about our business that's doing that to you Ben Oh well that got serious um, <laughs> no I I would just say you know obviously the last three years I mean come on uh, yeah. and so those first two weeks I remember like well I <laughs> we'll see what's gonna happen I mean we luckily we had some a lot of I mean we always try to have enough reserves in our company to weather storms but I I wasn't sure if how long this this storm was gonna last 
So that was just extremely stressful, I would say. That's the hard part. You never, you never want to disappoint anybody, especially your clients who are expecting a luxury service. And so really, you know, mining, like mining that and, and trying to protect them was probably the most stressful part of the last three years. Well, so interestingly, one of the things that happened for so many companies during that time was Texas became one of their biggest market, if not their biggest market. Yeah, well, and, yeah, and so that, true. Right? And and so everywhere where you are just blew, blew up. up. Blew up. And, you know, we had clients that have become clients that have relocated from California, from New York, from all these places. They all came to Texas. And, you know, it was for us, I mean, I feel fortunate. I felt like we were in that was a, a good time to be a business owner in the state of Texas, unless you were in the hospitality or <laughs> restaurant industry. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of these people, like, again, they looked at our home prices in Texas and they were like, wow, look what you can get for five to $10 million. Like this is like an estate compared to what we could get in California and New York or Connecticut or any of these other places. So we looked like a great deal. And these, a lot of these or, by the way, we also had a client that, again, they decided after they looked around their house for a couple of months and they were like, I hate everything about this place. I hate, our, I hate the walls, I hate the windows. Yeah. And yeah. they were like, we're ready to build a brand new house. And so that was also with our, um, with our, you know, our architectural design services, it just it just blew up. I mean, we have, we had almost, I guess now we have 25 projects on the books for uh, architect, like ground up construction. And that's just, um, it's been wonderful. Uh, and I'm super excited about it. Uh, but it was one of those things I you could never have predicted. I could never have predicted the way our industry was going to shift. And as you were just describing, so all these, and I don't know how a lot of the people in Texas felt about the people from California arriving. And I the was people thrilled. From New York. You were delighted. <laughs> I'm guessing others, guessing some of the ranchers might have felt differently about the whole thing. But yeah. they came. So did they stay? Does the market still feel as as red hot? Has there is there any sign of things slowing down or prices in some parts of the country and we talked about Miami recently prices just got so high that mm -hmm. people just started to leave because it was too much for them I mean right. have you felt that in Texas at all or I, I will say I haven't I feel fortunate I mean I do think um, I have friends and colleagues dealing with different sectors of the of our you know industry and and you know for us you know, we have cultivated a wonderful clientele that are less affected by some of the whims of what's happening in the market. Um, and so they have continued to remain extremely strong and in investing in, and all the services. Um, those people that came from out of state who've become our clients, you know, um, I think the biggest rub has been that They've driven up home prices and in the mm. luxury market, especially the inventory is extremely low. So people are fighting over the houses that do become available. And that's obviously artificially driven up a lot of real estate across the, across the board. Um, but I would say, you know, obviously I have friends all over the country and, and I would say some are, um, 
are in markets that are less robust and less diverse and are more susceptible to a slowdown in certain sectors. And and do they tell you stories of things feeling like they're slowing down? Yeah, I hear it. I hear it more from all my industry friends, be it mm. designers, manufacturers. I feel like I've heard some obviously you saying, okay, well, we're now starting to see it. There's been a decline in sales, or there's been a decline in, in certain things. But luckily, I can speak for Houston, Texas, as an example. I, I know that it continues to be very strong. And we do a lot of projects in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And those markets, or at least for those clients, have continued to remain strong. Okay. Okay, so so Houston's still going strong, and and you've got what twenty five projects that yeah. are in, that are in the works, um, and a and a book in the works. Yeah, so work a book is in the works. Okay. So you know, okay. it's it's been fun for me. I'm actually really excited. My um, my own personal home that I've been working on is getting as soon as we get back from Monaco, we're moving into my new home. So <laughs> I. I'm really excited about it. And, you know, there is, um, that's really going to serve as the basis for, for the book. So I'm really excited to begin, um, that process of development on that side. So tell me what you mean. So we're going to, we're going to go through and sort of see what you've done on your own project. And yeah, the neat thing is, is, you know, I always look at a designer's home as being their workshop or their laboratory. Mm. So for me, I, wanted really desperately to experiment all over <laughs> um, <laughs> my house at every level. And, you know, this is one of our ground up also constructions, designed the house, obviously decorated. We're doing all the interiors, all the landscape design, the pool design, everything to really kind of bring this holistic vision to life. So there's a lot to, to cover there more than just pretty pictures. So we're going to be excited to see how that might manifest in, in a book. Well, that that's great, and we look forward to that. So, timing roughly, what do we think? Well, we're we're going to be prom- we're going to be photographing the book at the beginning of next year. Um, okay. We've got we um, obviously it takes a while once you move in to get all the art in the right spot and all the sure. you know all the layers. So, that's the plan, and so we're going to reevaluate after uh, at that point to kind of see what the timeline would be. Okay, but that but that, and I'm, that's exciting for you for your I mean moving into your yeah. into your new home and and the other thing to 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 say is that in Houston there isn't quite a house that I've ever seen that looks quite like this or has done some of the things that we're doing in that house. So for me, obviously, it's 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 like a coffee table book from the standpoint we want to bring clients by, we want to entertain them in the home, and we want to inspire them to to try to do some of the things that we've done in this home in their own spaces or in their own architecture projects. So it's really meant to be kind of a living portfolio piece, uh, as any project would be, um, is a living portfolio piece. So I really want to make sure that um, we create the opportunity for more of that here in Houston. Interesting. And and do you feel that in Houston you, you need to show people and kind of bring them along? And, right? I do. I can't tell you okay. how many times I get slid over the conference table, a picture from Architectural Digest, and the clients are like, this is what we want to create, or this vibe, or this feeling, or this architectural sensibility, or this design sensibility. And and I'm always, you know, of course, I find it impressive and wonderful and inspiring and beautiful. But a lot of clients don't necessarily know what it took to get that. 
that mm. they're seeing and they don't have an understanding about what it costs to create those things. It's an education process. So for me, I felt like with this home, I wanted to be able to show them things that we've been experimenting with to have real life experience in terms of representing how it's made, how it's constructed. And we, we really opted to do a very intricate architecture program to really, again, see what works, see what's been difficult, try different things out and see how it, you know, what we can do to become excellent, not perfect, but excellent at what it is that we're doing. Often our industry struggles with the fact that, just to your point, people have no idea what it costs to achieve the the look, right? They 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 put these images on Pinterest and they slide an issue of Architectural Digest across the table to you. But and 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 I just feel like we've done such a terrible job as an industry uh, of educating people about what these things cost. And I and I don't know what your thoughts are about how we could be better about that. You know, get that. I don't know. At least I can only speak from my experience. I feel like. Um, I try really hard at the beginning of a conversation with my clients. I say, you know, in polite society, which we feel like we are part of polite society, there's a few things that you're told never to talk about. And one of those things is to talk about money. And I think that there is a... um, what what that has done is obviously when you don't talk about it, A, you become uncomfortable at discussing what your expectations are in terms of budget, but you also um, have no real idea of what anything costs. <laughs> and so I try really early on with my clients to say, I understand that the conversation about money is not a comfortable one uh, mm. for you necessarily. Some by the way, I have some clients that are like, oh, I'll talk about money all day long. But I have a lot, <laughs> I have a lot of clients who are just like, you know what, we either are not going to be transparent about it or we're going to just try to be too polite to talk about it. And it, for me, I just need ultimate transparency because if, you know, one of the significant factors in the client satisfaction is does what you're presenting to them from a design perspective, is it achievable from a budget perspective? Is it achievable from what their financial means are or what their priorities are? And maybe their financial means far uh, exceed what their priorities are. And so for me, I always want to understand what my clients are valuing. Um, And so, you know, maybe they have unlimited resources, but for them, the notion of a $30,000 sofa is ridiculous. They're like, why would I ever spend $30,000 on a sofa? You know, so everybody has what I call their pain point when it comes to talking about money and what values they bring to the process of design. So I just think, yes, as an industry, I don't know, I don't foresee this necessarily changing. All I can Mm -hmm. do is be an advocate within the confidentiality of my office to have straightforward, upfront conversations that set realistic expectations that I can actually deliver on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, 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 it makes sense. And and that is such a great point that even if they do have unlimited resources, that doesn't mean that they can wrap their head around a sofa (laughs) costing $30,000. It's totally true. And, And yes, 
and or or if that's what they value, and maybe they value art more than they value furniture, or maybe they. I mean, they will yes. easily, they will spend a million dollars on that painting, but the idea that a sofa costs that much is ludicrous to them. Um, and then again, that's fair. I, I'm not there to change their mind about how yeah. they value things. I am there to create beautiful interiors that align with their values and and what they were trying to achieve from both a fe- functional and aesthetic point of view. It's such a great point, and. Earlier, we were talking about skill sets and training and all of that. And I I just feel like designers can never get enough training in psychology, in right, in how to, in how, I mean, as you say, we're all, most of us are raised to not talk about money. And yet here we have to talk about it all the time. And you're constantly selling and having to explain how much things cost and what it's going to mean and all of that. And I, I just don't know what we could do to better prepare i the only thing i can tell you is that in our office i try to plug in everybody on our team and as many client meetings as possible i try to get them involved from a very early stage in the process everyone on our team i i'm like speak up share your thoughts like give us you know establish trust with the client like i want you to participate and um but it's them watching perhaps the more senior people on my team um, mm. in the way that they speak to clients and the way that we try to model good behavior that ultimately I hope that the number of us who are good and respectful about that client trust and that client expectation, I hope it resonates and I hope it they bring that experience with them to every future experience. So I just, I, again, I do think we wear a lot of hats and I do, you know, there's a good portion of what I do that I've never been trained to do. I've only had to learn from many experiences. Uh, so I'm a firm believer that there are no mistakes, only learning opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> of which it turns out there are many. It turns <laughs> out that they present themselves all the time. I've so enjoyed speaking with you, and I, I, and I thank you so much for making the time. Of course. You are a delight, and I am looking forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.